Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing. You also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody. Al Bernstein here with our debut of Al Bernstein Unplugged Unboxing, uh, our new podcast slash show in which I get a chance to talk to you about the current state of boxing, reminisce about things that have happened in the past, and we get to visit with a boxing personality as well. This is really exciting to me because uh, for those of you that see me uh, do the fights on Showtime Championship Boxing, which I thoroughly enjoy, uh, on those shows, of course, I concentrate on the fights at hand and try to enhance those for your viewing. But I don't get a chance to talk about these other topics. And here, I have a chance to expand on those a little more, also a chance to interact with you and, as I said, with boxing personalities that I, I enjoy talking to. Now, on this show today, we're going to take some of your questions that you sent in to Twitter, at uh, Al Bernstein, that's where you sent them to me, and I will answer a bunch of those. Also, in our flashback section, which is a special feature that we're going to do in every show, a boxing flashback, I will take a look back at the uh, Marvin Hagler-Tommy Hearns fight, and then in our special interview, we will talk with Andre Ward, the great uh, boxing champion, and also, of course, now uh, a great broadcaster. Now, I'm not going to be a singular voice on this show. Uh, I have a co-host, and I'm happy to say that I have uh, this gentleman with me. He is a longtime friend and fine broadcaster, my good friend Tripp Mitchell. Tripp, I am glad that you're taking this journey with me. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, and I understand it came down to two of us, and it was close. It, you know, I didn't want to say this, but you're right. It was a, it was a competition that, we, as we narrowed down the finalists, it did come down to two people, but I'm very happy that you were able to just narrowly edge out Adrian Broner as my co-host. You, you beat him by just a little bit, but nonetheless, you got the job. The part where Adrian Broner said, I want to kill Al on the first show, can I get that a little better? You know what? That may have influenced my decision, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, so so I'm happy that you're aboard with uh, with us, and um, we have uh, when the sh when we get going uh, into the time when there's more boxing and uh, we have more news to cover, we're going to have a news section at the beginning of the show. But for these, we got so many questions right off the bat from boxing fans that we thought we would do this section with questions. And then we'd also do some questions later in the show after we interview Andre Ward. Well, that's great. And by the way, isn't it wonderful? So now you have a way to interact with your 63,000 Twitter followers. Yeah, a lot of folks on Twitter uh, that I interact with. And I get to talk to them um, on Twitter. But this gives us a chance when they ask a question for me to give them a more expansive answer. Okay, one of the first questions up. What's the toughest fight for Loma? Lopez, Haney, Tank? or Garcia? Yeah, of course, they're talking about Vasily Lomachenko, uh, who is regarded uh, as one of the top pound-for-pound -pound fighters in boxing today, in some quarters, the top. And what that question speaks to is how absolutely loaded the lightweight division is in, in talent. And uh, the reference there, of course, is to um, Teofimo Lopez, who will be the next opponent 
of Lomachenko. He was supposed to fight him in May. Of course, now that has been pushed back due to the coronavirus. Uh, and uh, now uh, that fight will be later. But that will be the next fight for um, Vasily Lomachenko. And a tough one because Lopez showed us in his last fight just how effective and how brilliant he can be. Devin Haney, of course, another very talented lightweight who has great hand speed and foot speed. That's what he brings to the table. Um, Gervonta Davis brings a lot of power. Uh, he is a powerful puncher, and he's a lefty as well, like Lomachenko. And Ryan Garcia is a young man who is very, very talented and has enormous power. Now, his trainer, Eddie Reynoso, just said this week that he thinks Ryan Garcia is a couple of fights away from facing any of these fighters that I just mentioned, but uh, he wants him to get a little more experience and then he'll be ready to fight them. I think all of these fighters prevent, uh, present Lomachenko with an interesting challenge. If he gets past Lopez uh, and he can win that fight, um, I think for me, one of the more interesting matchups that he could have uh, right now, because again, I think Brian Garcia might not be ready to jump in, would be his battle with Javante Davis who, of course, I've had the pleasure of calling a number of his fights. And he is, as I said, very, uh, very powerful and a talented fighter as well. It would be the clash of two lefties. Of course, there's boxing politics involved, so we don't know how, whether these matches can happen. But um, all of them present a challenge to Lomachenko for sure. And we're going to find out next time out just how much of a challenge Tifimo Lopez presents to him. Uh, and Lopez is a very talented and powerful puncher. And one of the things that he brings to this is a really strong right hand. And Jorge Linares was able to hit Lomachenko with a big right hand to knock him down in, in their fight, which was a very almost a dead-even fight before Lomachenko scored, Lomachenko scored a knockdown. So Lopez will bring a lot to the dance. Oh, fantastic. Next question. What was your favorite Franklin Muhammad fight? Oh, oh, Matthew Saad Muhammad. Yeah. Matthew Franklin slash yep. Matthew Saad Muhammad. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> the what they're alluding to in the question. And Matthew Saad Muhammad, for anybody that doesn't know, was a brilliant light heavyweight in the 1970s and 80s. And he engaged in some unbelievable fights. I saw his fight, I was present for his fight with Marvin Johnson when he won the title in Indianapolis. That was so extraordinary that you would think there is no way that would be second on my list of Matthew Saad Muhammad <laughs> fights, but it is because in 1980, he fought Yaki Lopez uh, in what was the fight of the year in 1980. Round eight was the round of the year, it was extraordinary. And they had a pitched battle that went to the 14th round, and ultimately Matthew Saad Muhammad won by TKO in the 14th round. Yaki Lopez is the very best fighter who has never won a world title. Four times he challenged for a world title during an era when the light heavyweight division was the very best it's ever been, and yet Yaki Lopez did not win any of those four fights, even though you can make a strong case that he got robbed against um, Victor Galindez and should have had that decision. Um, but the fight with the Matthew Saad Muhammad, which I strongly urge people when you're done with this, uh, <laughs> watching this podcast, go on YouTube and take a look at that fight. It is just extraordinary. And 
Yaki Lopez, who is still alive, Matthew Saad Mohammed has passed away. Yaki lives in California with his wife. I got to see him about a year ago at an event out in California. And not only was he, I mean, he's a credit to the sport of boxing and he's one of the most delightful guys you'll ever see. And he was a true warrior in the ring. And he and Saad Mohammed produced a classic. Well, that's fantastic. And by the way, you're now going back 40 years. You can remember every round to every fight that you covered. You are <laughs> amazing. Quite. In fact, there's a portion of the 80s that I think I don't remember too much of, but we won't go into that. I, the 80s are just a distant memory to me in many ways. Okay. <laughs> we all had fun in the 80s, right? Uh, we did. And another viewer asked a really great question. What was your interview with Tomashek after the Tommy Morrison fight the craziest ever? Oh, my God. Well, to, to set up that story, Tim Tomaszek was a journeyman fighter who ended up fighting for the World Heavyweight Championship against Tommy Morrison. This was right after Tommy Morrison had beaten George Foreman, won the world title, and he promised to come home to, um, to fight in his home area. And so in Kansas City at the Kemper Arena, um, he had – he was supposed to uh, fight um, Mike Williams, a fighter, a heavyweight fighter. And he, Williams bolted 20 minutes before the show. <laughs> he just decided he wasn't going to fight. And so, of course, we had, you know, we didn't have a, a championship fight all the time on ESPN at that time, a heavyweight title fight. And so this was a big deal. And I mean, we were 20 minutes before airtime and there was nobody to fight Tommy <laughs> Morrison. Needless to say, people were panicking. So Bruce Trampler, the um, promoter for uh, the matchmaker for top rank boxing, went up in the stands and found Tim Tomaszek, who was a journeyman heavyweight. He was 35 and 10. He'd appeared a couple times on top rank boxing, and he was quite a character. <laughs> Tim had already, Trip, had three beers. <laughs> in, in he was just... My, he was hydrating. Yeah. In my book, one of the chapters is it's, uh, it's 30 years, 30 undeniable truths. One of the undeniable truths is it's best not to fight for the world championship when you've had three beers. So that <laughs> Tim, Tim Tomashek had already had three beers. And, and Bruce Trampler said, would you like to fight Tommy Morrison tonight? And he said, of course, sure. Why not? <laughs> so he came down and interestingly managed to go five rounds, five, four plus rounds with Tommy Morrison and had a few moments in the fight. Some were weird, but some were effective. <laughs> Tommy Morrison ended up, you know, TKOing him. Uh, and what was most remarkable is what our um, uh, questioner references. And that is the interview I did with Tim Tomaszek, which is another YouTube video I highly recommend when you're done with this uh, with this um, podcast. Tim Tomaszek did an interview with me that is definitely the funniest I have ever been involved with. In fact, it was so funny that David Letterman booked Tim Tomaszek five days later to be on his show. Uh, it's a riot. Tim Tomaszek um, started out the interview by saying, hey, nobody knows I'm even here. You know, I work at Shopco. Hey, I'm a handsome guy, right? That, that was Tim Tomaszek, you know. So he, uh, that interview was, was, was pretty crazy. And, of course, it was part of the ESPN Top Rank Boxing Series, which um, is one that provided me with many, many great memories. You guys were the greatest show on turf, as people would say, to paraphrase <laughs> a little bit. But I would hear stories 
when I started covering boxing, people will tell stories about when you guys would go into a town, you guys would take over a town. Yeah, we, well, we, that is true. We would go, we, you know, we did 48 shows a year on the top ranked boxing, which seems impossible now to fathom, right? And we would go to these small towns, you know, some of the fights were in Atlantic City and some were in Las Vegas. But then in between, we would go, you know, to these small towns in the South and in the, in the Midwest and, uh, and out West and everywhere. And we were like the circus coming to town. I'll, a perfect example is when we went to Bristol, Tennessee. Um, I will never forget that one because they, they were, it was as if, uh, you know, we were uh, visiting dignitaries and, and <laughs> it was, you know, we, we would literally take over and it was, it was, it was a riot. And so that series provided, you know, some wonderful, wonderful memories. And it recently had it, it, it that was 40 years ago it debuted on ESPN. And uh, over the course of time, I worked with approximately 4,000 uh, broadcast <laughs> partners, <laughs> give or take a couple, um, which was pretty amazing. Though I did have uh, a long eight-year run with Barry Tompkins, and I uh, had a nice long run with Bob Papa. Uh, and I worked with some very talented people, Dave Buntempo and all the rest. So it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. That leads us to one of the segments that we'll be doing every week on this show, and that is called our flashback segment. Um, and for this particular week, I chose a fight that just this past week or so had its 35th anniversary. It was April 15th, 1985, when Marvin Hagler took on Tommy Hearns at the outdoor arena at Caesars Palace, uh, in a battle for the middleweight championship. And it was an extraordinary event and an extraordinary night on all levels. Um, now, I was only about five years into my broadcasting career in 1985. I started at ESPN, as we just alluded to, in 1980. And so here I was five years into my career getting this amazing assignment. I had done the Hagler-Duran fight on, on pay-per-view, so that was really exciting. This fight was, was even on a higher level, really, because of the excitement attached to it. And Las Vegas was, you know, buzzing for this fight, uh, as it was for all those fights in the 1980s. And remember, that was a time when there was no, there, there was, boxing was one of the, the top sports uh, that was covered by all the media. And there wasn't as much um, uh, really competition for our sporting attention. And so that fight was literally on the lips of every casual sports fan in America. The lead up to the fight was amazing because Tommy Hearns and, and Marvin Hagler, who are two guys that I dearly love, but they didn't love each other. <laughs> they were, there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of antagonism leading up to this fight. They got under each other's skin and they were ready for this battle. And the atmosphere at the outdoor arena in, uh, at Caesars was electric. After the, their walk-ins, I did something that now has become a staple for me. I, it was when they were standing there waiting to be introduced, I took my headphones off so that I could drink in the moment and listen to this crowd and look around at the crowd and see what they were doing and how they were reacting to these two amazing fighters as we were on the precipice of this great fight. And 
I have now done that at every single broadcast that I have ever done since that time in 1985, because it dawned on me that how lucky I was to be sitting there. And I consider myself every fight I do on any level, I consider myself lucky to be sitting there and having a chance to do those fights. And so I take my headphones off and I look around and gauge the, uh, the atmosphere and let it sink in. The fight itself matched, uh, obviously, all the, uh, all the intensity. Uh, many people have surmised that the feelings that uh, Hearns and Hagler had for each other may have contributed to them starting so quickly in that fight. I don't think any of us expected the fight to start like it did. In round one, it was mayhem. It started with Tommy Hearns hurting Marvin Hagler, or at least stunning him, with a big right hand, one that would we, we found out later injured uh, Tommy Hearns's right hand. I had not seen Hagler stunned or hurt to that point and never did again in his career. So to the best of my knowledge, this was the most hurt Tom, uh, Marvin Hagler had been. Nevertheless, he was able to shake it off and they produced a round one that was one for the books. And in fact, at the end of the round, uh, I said, this might've been the best round in middleweight history. Uh, the man working with me uh, on the broadcast, by the way, was Al Michaels, uh, and Kurt Gowdy was the host uh, and, uh, of that uh, evening. So it was pretty extraordinary. We had a, it, you know, quite the announcing team. Uh, and, and Al Michaels said to me later that it's one of the most exciting experiences uh, that he could possibly have in broadcasting. We know Al has had many great uh, experiences, and I saw him about two or three years ago, and he echoed that. Uh, and wrote in his book about it as well. So round one was it, it just crazy. Um, and then once we got to round two, Tommy Hearns was trying to box a little bit more. He had cut Marvin Hagler with his punches. And Marvin had some terrible cuts. Richard Steele would look at the cuts and determine that they were pretty bad. And I think there was danger that that fight was going to be stopped. Marvin Hagler took that as his cue to up the ante, and he said he realized that he needed a knockout to win, and of course he got the knockout over uh, over Tommy Hearns. One of the side stories to this is that um, Gary Shandling, the late Gary Shandling, who was a good friend of mine, uh, <laughs> came to the fight because he he was opening for Joan Rivers at Caesar's Palace, and one day at lunch he said to me, you know, he said the thing about that Hagler Hearns fight that really worked out well was. I only had time for two and a half rounds. <laughs> for him, it was the perfect length of that fight. Uh, and they were nice enough to accommodate Gary so that he could go back and perform uh, leading off for, uh, for Joan Rivers. Um, it, was, it was really extraordinary. And to this day, it remains uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had in broadcasting. Uh, I mentioned my admiration for both Tommy Hearns and Marvin Hagler. That will never abate. Uh, I really respect and love them as fighters and as men as well. They've been nothing but wonderful to me, uh, and and I have um, I've always just respected them. A, another sidelight about Tommy Hearns and Marvin Hagler. My son, who is a singer-songwriter and actor, and not really the biggest boxing fan on the planet, uh, to him. An Oscar doesn't mean Oscar de la Hoya, it means an Academy Award. And so 
he was 12. When I got inducted into the uh, International Boxing Hall of Fame, he was 12 years old. And um, we were staying at this little hotel in Canastota, New York, where everybody stays. And, and, and in the hallway, you know, a few doors down was Sugar Ray Leonard. Then there was Tommy Hearns over here, uh, Marvin Hagler over there. And my son had no idea who these men were, none <laughs> whatsoever. But during his whole stay there, they, he played with them. He hung around with them. They became pals. It was like Uncle Marvin and Uncle Tommy and Uncle Ray. And when we got done with it, I said to Wes, I said, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, they, they're really nice guys. I said, <laughs> I said, if you really realize that there are millions of kids out there that would love the opportunity to have done what you did with those three guys, I said, you would be astonished. So now he kind of knows that he had a special <laughs> opportunity with those three men. Uh, speaking of special men, uh, our interview for this show is uh, indeed a special man. He was a 168-pound champion and a 175-pound champion, and I had the privilege of announcing a number of his fights, and uh, I've had the privilege of knowing him as well for a long time, and I'm thrilled that he is now a very fine broadcaster with ESPN, and uh, his name is Andre Ward, and we had a chance to visit with him. Here's our chat with Andre Ward. Andre, it is uh, a delight to get a chance to talk to you. Uh, we don't cross paths as much as we used to. We're, we're in different orbits in the boxing world. And of course, now everybody uh, is, is hunkering in. Um, first, how are you and the family doing in this new reality? Family's good. Um, unprecedented times, but you know, we're hanging in there, man. God is keeping us and we're, you know, we're just praying for the world, man, and praying for people and and uh, trying to do our part just to, you know, stay safe and, and uh, just enjoy each other, man. We're having a, a good time. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. You do get to be with your family. And in some ways, it, it provides you a chance to, to bond further. Yeah, no, we, you know, because me and my wife, we're normally on the clock daily. I mean, we got a, you know, one almost two-year-old and then a 19-year-old and everything in between. So imagine that every day. <laughs> pick up, drop off. So to not yeah. have to do that feels good. Um, just a lot, you know, a lot of projects, a lot of things that kind of been put, you've been putting on the shelf, you get a chance to get those things done. So it's, it's good. That's for sure. Now, you, of course, world champion, great fighter uh, before becoming a great broadcaster, but put yourself for a second, if you can, in the minds of all the fighters and boxers today. Uh, and how they might be dealing with this um, this situation, and how you might have dealt with it if if you had faced it. Um, some of them already had long layoffs, maybe, and now here they are facing another one. How do they emotionally get past this? Do you think? Well, I mean, of course, it's it's tough, especially for those that that either have fights scheduled or you know, like in the case of Shakur Stevenson, like he was at you know he was at the venue, he was he was there the week of the fight. Right. And days before the fight, it got canceled. So that that right there is really hard to swallow because you spent money in training camp. You've been away from your family. You've been sacrificing, doing all the stuff. You're making weight. And then all of a sudden, you get the phone call. Mm -hmm. So so that's tough to kind of get through. But if you're just a, you know, a fighter who, you know, didn't really have something on the books and maybe it was a ways out, I think this is a great opportunity to show what type of discipline you have. Like, mm -hmm. fighters should not just get ready when they have something on the books. I mean, we 
talked about this throughout boxing for ages and not everybody follows that that you know that that blueprint um but the great ones they do so i if i were in this situation and really anybody who 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 is in this situation you're not going to be able to go to the gym really and spar and do your normal routine but you know there's nothing stopping you from running there's nothing stopping you from doing your you know calisthenics and strength work in the gym and being mindful about what you're putting in your body at home and i know that you know it's a lot of we we all kind of got the quarantine body right now (laughs) but fighters don't really have that luxury i mean they they can balloon up in weight but if you're really dedicated and you're really serious then 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 you're going to push the plate back and you're going to be mindful about what you eat and that way when you do get back and when things do resume to to normal um you know you're not you're not so far behind the eight ball where you know it takes you two three months to get right that doesn't have to happen i know people think that does but Mm -hmm. you can show discipline at the table you can show discipline with your physical fitness and you can come back and, and not have that much rest to shake off. That is probably exactly the answer I would have expected from you. <laughs> and, and, and eloquent as always. Um, so my, uh, the, the, the time when I got to know you the best um, what, at, at the beginning was when you were in the Super Six tournament in the, uh, uh, yeah. that was on Showtime. It was your coming out party in effect as a, even though you of course had been a professional, you'd done all the hard work to get yourself to that uh, elite level, but this was where people found out about Andre Ward, and they found out on a night in uh, in California when you beat Mikhail, Mikhail Kessler um, with a terrific performance. Everybody, when that tournament was happening, the, the scuttlebutt amongst a lot of the boxing uh, pundits was that you were the guy to watch in that tournament. Did you feel, when you looked at that at that field, did you feel confident that you could handle those guys? Of course. Um, I, I, I mean, I knew, I knew, and Burge knew, my godfather. Like, we, we knew, you know, obviously what we possessed. And if, if we didn't feel like we were ready, we wouldn't have got in in the right. tournament. We didn't have to sign up for that. Um, but you got to prove it. So that was, you know, the opportunity over that two-year span or however long it was, like, it felt like about change. six years, didn't it? It felt like six years of like, <laughs> delays and setbacks. But, you know, I also got to give everybody credit for hanging in there. Because yeah, that's right. Many promoters, that many fighters, and, you know, substitutes, guys getting knocked off, injured. Yeah. Like, for us to have, like, finished that, you know, that, 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 that's a big thing for everybody that was involved. That's not easy to do. Um, but, no, we, we knew internally what we had, Al. Like, we, we knew what we were working right. with, so to speak. Um, but – you got to prove it, like I said, and, and, and as I came out and proved it to the world fight by fight, I was also proving it to myself because intellectually mm-hmm. I can know, in theory I can know, but I got I to gotta, I gotta actually rise to the occasion and do it. And, you know, the, the, the dangerous thing about a tournament like that is that it's sink or swim. Like, you're either going to become a star or you're going to get sent to the back of the bus. Like, there were right. multiple careers that got ruined, as you know, in that Super 6. Yes, that that's a very in. good point. Yeah, guys that came in with a certain reputation, certain cachet, you know, even even a fear factor. And they didn't leave the tournament the same way that they came in, and that could have easily have been me. Yeah, but that's a really that's a really good point. And of course, you won the finals. Uh, uh, you you fought tough fighters and had to fight Carl Frotch in the finals. Hardly an easy task, and uh, and you won that decision, and that's what set you on the path to all the other great fights you had after it. 
you mentioned Virgil uh, Hunter. One of the unique things about your career is that you stayed with the same trainer the entire career that you had. And yeah. that's a rarity in boxing, isn't it? It's a rarity. I, 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 you know, but he was family. You know, it wasn't just, you know, a guy. He wasn't just a high yeah, hand. Right. Yeah, he was my godfather mm-hmm. uh, as well as my coach. And, you know, he stepped in, you know, he was already in a dual father role when my dad was alive. But when my dad died, you know, when I was, you know, 18 years old, um, I don't know what I would have done if he wasn't there mm-hmm. to help guide me through that rough time and some of the struggles that I had and mistakes that I was making and things that I thought I wanted to get involved in. That, that looking back now, you know, at 36 years old, <laughs> yeah, probably wasn't too wise. Um, <laughs> we all this, have this, those moments, I think. Huh? Come on now. We all got them, you know, but in, and some get through them, and unfortunately some don't. But I find that the ones that do, they have the verges of the world. They have people that, that are walking alongside them that are, that, are, that are not afraid to speak truth to them. And that's what Verge was. So, you know, like I, I never really understood you know, the, the switching trainers every time something goes wrong. Because for me, training camp, uh, a fight, you know, uh, locker room moments before the fight, all that stuff to me is just so intimate. Like, I need to have a guy next to me that, that, that knows what I possess, yeah. a guy that, that's going to tell me the truth and a guy that's not going to panic if things go awry. And, and just somebody that I feel comfortable with. So I, can, I, I couldn't I couldn't never imagine being having another guy in my corner outside of her. Intriguing. Very well said. So you had a great career. And one of the things that people now, as we sit and uh, try to find ways to talk about boxing and think about sports, whether it's watching an old, you know, of some game where the, the Warriors won a NBA title, or in my case, the Cubs won a World Series, or, or watching great old yeah. boxing. The other thing that people are doing is talking about mythical matchups. And Two of the people in boxing that I have great respect for, of you, of course, and my friend Joe Calzaghi. Mm. And so people always talk about the idea of that the greatest 168-pound fight ever would be Joe Calzaghi and Andre Ward. And one of the interesting things about that is you're both uh, cerebral fighters. You both have great skills. If you were going to fight Joe Calzaghi, and you, you've, you've had several different styles. You're very good at being a chameleon and adapting styles. How would you approach fighting Joe Calzaghi? Man. I know, I hit you with a tough no. one, huh? The, the, Joe, the Joe Calzaghi matchup, it, you know, I've thought about that, obviously. Have you, have you given it thought? <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Of course, yeah. I've thought about that throughout the years. And I'll kind of give you a little secret. Okay, um, go ahead. I didn't really like fighting or really like sparring guys with, with high, you know, the who, guys who were high volume punchers. Oh, yeah. Like, I didn't mind, like, you know, I didn't mind fighting a big puncher. Mm. You know, it's one or two shots you got to look out for. I had great eyes, great reflexes. Yeah. You can't predict everything. Sometimes you get caught, but, but I was okay with that. But guys that, that, that had the 80, 90 punches around, those are the guys where I'm like, man, here we go, man. It's, <laughs> because that, like, Verge classified me as a pick'em fighter, uh-huh. similar to Floyd. If you look at, if you look at, yeah, right. If you look at our styles, we don't necessarily throw combinations until we get you hurt. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're picking you, we're picking you apart. Jab, jab to the stomach, jab to the head, right hand, step mm-hmm. back, reset. Like, like our stuff kind of accumulates 
you know, uh, over some rounds. And, and, but Calzaghe was a guy who, as we know, those that know the sport and who have followed Calzaghe, man, he was a guy who threw sometimes over 100 punches around. Yeah. And it didn't seem like they had a lot of steam on them but they would add up. So yeah. that would have been something that I would have had to deal with some. I wouldn't have been happy about dealing with. <laughs> but, but the way that you cut a volume puncher down is great feet and distance and range. And oh, okay. I wouldn't have tried to go punch for punch with Joe Calzaghe. We saw Bernard Hopkins do that. Bernard Hopkins is not a volume guy. You know, he's a thinker. He's right. a guy that can throw combinations, but that's not really his thing. He got caught up in that game, and it kind of backfired. He had early success. Down the road, Calzaghe pulled away. My distance and my range with my feet and kind of dictating what, what range this fight is going to be fought at. If he gets inside, knowing when to tie up, when to work really quick, tie up, and then allow the ref to break us. Like, it would have had to have been a very psychological, like a very methodical fight. And uh, Joe would have won some rounds for sure. But I think, I think this is where mm -hmm. the difference would have been between me and Joe. That's interesting. And you would have tried to make him into less of a volume puncher. Well, A, the legs and distance yeah. and creating the range and kind of dictating where this fight is going to be fought. It's not going to be fought at the range you want to fight at. And it's not going to be fought at the pace you want to fight yeah, at. That's right. what you call taking a guy's punch, punch count down. And I've done that in the past with guys in the amateurs, pros. It's not easy to do. Um, but I would have got, I think I would have got Joe by what I just mentioned and then also the body punches yeah, and yeah. the inside work. But then also I know Joe struggled to make weight. True. You didn't always see it on his face. You didn't always see him huffing and puffing, but mm -hmm. Joe would kill himself, especially late in his career, making the weight. Those are things, Joe, uh, Al, that when you're facing a guy like that, it's not, it's not, it's not five big things that you have an advantage over your opponent in when you're facing top competition. It's one, maybe two, maybe three mm -hmm. smaller things that you execute. So the legs and the range, the body punching inside, taking wind, slowly breaking them down, and then knowing that he tends to fade sometimes and he struggles to make weight, I think that would have separated me and Joe from far. Interesting. That's great. Well, I've always wanted to ask you that. So, and of course, you, you had a great but answer. No, but no, no, no easy task. No, no Joe no. Calzaghe was... A and, and he's left-handed. Yeah, that, on top of everything else, right? Yeah, he's a great fighter and a great guy just like you. So you have carved out already a broadcasting career for yourself that is extraordinary. And what most people don't know about you is that you went about it the right way. You, you did broadcasting up in the Bay Area. You would make it your business. And I, having talked to you, my, you know, I understand that you knew that you were going to want to broadcast and you're you did it the way you did boxing, get reps, get a chance to uh, practice it. And that led you into uh, the career you have now. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to, to Roy Jones. I mean, Roy, Roy was the first one um, to really kind of spark the thought, you mm -hmm. know, because until you know better, you, you kind of go along with, with, you know, the status quo. I'm, I'm a fighter and you're supposed to, you know, act like this and, and, we fight for a little while, and then we retire, and then, you know, people forget about us. But Roy was different, man. Roy was a, a country boy from Pensacola, Florida with <laughs> swag, and he broadcast it. And I, that, like, blew me away. And he not only broadcast it, but, like, he would have Smoke Gaynor, you know, Derek Smoke Gaynor, who was under his promotional banner, Square Ring, like, fight on his undercars. Roy would go on the front row 
and and watch Smokes fights and then go back and change for the main event. So he, he would always do things that were unorthodox. He would always break the rules, so to speak, and get away with it. And seeing Roy do that kind of sparked something in me. And and Bird used to always encourage me. He said, son, you're going to do it. Son, one day you're going to be a great broadcaster. And then I started, you know, the World Series of Boxing was, was my first opportunity with Alan Massingale. And then I came over to Showtime with you, man. You've been such a, just a, just a, a great mentor, a great friend. Um, and, you know, just with small things and big things, you know, sometimes broadcasters, and I haven't really experienced this, but I've seen this. Experienced broadcasters don't always want to help the young bug. They're like, listen, man, I got work to do. We're on live. You got to figure this out. And fortunately for me, you know, when I started off the Showtime, you weren't like that. And the other guys weren't like that. So I learned on the job. I learned a lot quickly, made mistakes. Um, and I don't think people realize how long I've actually done it kind of off and on. I just, when I was active, you know, even at HBO. Right. I, I, I did what the, the frequency wasn't there. Like I'd have five to seven shows a year. Whereas right. Now it's 15 to 20. Um, so it's kind of been a, a long road, but just great mentors. I mean, you know, Max Kellerman has been a great mentor. Jim Lampley has been a great mentor. Obviously my guys at ESPN, they're, 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 they're always great. And um, just trying to give something to the sport. Al. It's not, it's not about me getting on camera and shining. Like I've had enough camera time in my day. Like I truly want to bring something to the sport, try to explain things where the lay person who's just tuning in at their friend's house watching the fight can understand it, but then the hardcore boxing fan can also be fed. And just trying to uplift the sport, give people a, a, a fair shake, be as objective as possible, as honest as possible. And you know, fans, they get on like, well, you work for this company, so you're paying for this know, yeah. It's like, man, come on. Come on, I, I, got, I got a little bit more integrity than that. But you try to do the best you can to not let any personal feelings right. get in the way. Like, like if I feel a certain way about a fighter, and not to say that I do, but if I did, you right. that shouldn't come across on the screen. No. And I've learned that from guys like yourself where I really don't know how Al feels about this guy on a personal level. He's calling the action in the ring, and that's what I try to do. And that's and that is what you're. That was extremely well put, and that's exactly the case. And that's why your career has been so good, and that's why you're one of the best to do this. And I, as you recall, uh, when we had discussions about it, I said you were going to end up being the best color commentator. You've always told me that, and I'm like, ever. what? So, I so couldn't believe it. You're 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 on your way to doing that. Speaking of which, and uh, before I let you go, you the most recent fight you did uh, was. Um, or one of the most recent, there might have been one after, but was yep, uh, Wilder and Fury. And it yep. was, you know, I did the first Wilder and Fury fight, uh, and then you were part of the broadcast team, of course, that did the second one. And while the first one went some ways to form, because it was the way you would expect that fight to go, you know, uh, Fury boxing effectively, Wilder landing a couple of big power punches, coming this close to a knockout and not quite getting it, the second fight was nothing like you, like that, and I'm curious when he when uh, what, Fury came in at a very high weight and and came in at 273. I remember thinking to myself, "Oh my, this doesn't seem good." Yeah. Do you feel like maybe though? Did you buy into the idea that he could bully Wilder like he did? I, I mean, I, of course. Like I mean, at, at his size. Yeah, like th those are two, two big men. Like, yeah, of course he's big enough to do it, but that's not really his game. No, no. So I, I felt the same 
way that you felt when I yeah. saw the weight gain and I heard all the talk about the weight gain and I said, hold on now. Yeah, I know, yeah. I said, hold on. I said, why would you become kind of a sitting duck and have more right. mass on you and almost like a weighted vest? Like, why would you put on another 8 to 10 or 15 right. with a guy like that? But then on the flip side, I said, there's also some gangsmanship here because Fury is he, – he, he's a he's a, he's a a great, you know, gangsman. Like, he knows what to say. He'll float yeah. certain things out to get a reaction. He'll, he'll float certain things out to, you know, get a reaction from the, the opposite camp. And I think it was some of that. So there was truth in there. He did come in heavier. But some of the way he talked about it and the frequency in which he talked about it, he wanted to get in Wilder's head. Yeah. And Wilder came in heavier. Don't know if that was originally by design or not, but I think that affected Wilder. And I think once you tell a guy that you're going to do something, hey, I'm coming in heavier and you're going to feel my strength, it's going to be a different fight. And then he gets in the ring and physically feels you heavier, stronger, and it's a different fight. Now all the doubt, all the questions come rushing back to his head and he has to deal with that in real time. So I just think Wilder never really had a chance to get settled. I, I don't know how you feel about the costume weighing his leg. I, I don't know, man. At the end of the day, at that level and at that stage, you got to figure those kind of things out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I give, I give Fury credit, man. He, he not only did it, but he, 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 he called a shot. And yeah, uh, you can respect amazing. that. And I'm looking forward to the rematch. I know Wilder's going to get himself together as best he can psychologically and, and, and physically and, and come stronger. Um, but Fury's going to be stronger as well, too, because he knows that he can do this now. He's not just guessing or trying to, you know, talk himself up. He knows. He's proved in front of the whole world. So he's going to be tough to beat as well. Yeah, it's going to be quite an interesting matchup. So I look forward to hearing you talk about it. Before I let you go, uh, I think you're really an interesting guy to me because you are a man of faith. Your faith is a big part of your life. And you don't hide it. You, it, you let people know that it's a part of your life. And yet, you, some people that, are, uh, were, that have their faith out there and it's an important part of what they do, get accused sometimes of using it as some kind of club to, to, to bash people with or create an atmosphere around them. And you've never, ever done that. It reminds me, I'm writing a book with Eddie Mustafa Muhammad now, and he was talking about Ali, who was a mentor to him. And he, one of the stories he told was how Jimmy Ellis was, spar was, was sparring with Ali, and some of Ali's camp members were trying to talk him into converting to Islam. Mm -hmm. And Ali said, no, 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 leave him alone. He's, he knows his mind. He knows what he's doing. Leave him alone. And, and I, 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 I find it really intriguing that you've been able to, uh, to walk that line and be very open about your faith, and yet it never seems to create any issue. Does that make yeah, sense, what I'm saying? For sure. And it, it's not an easy line to toe. Um, it's not, you know, but I, I have great you know, leadership and great mentors, you know, in my life. Um, you know, I got a, a bunch of deacons at my church. Mm -hmm. um, Pastor Napoleon Kaufman here in the Bay Area, man, just guys that, that have, have, have lived it out, you know, in real time in front of my face. And I've seen the balance that they've struck. And, you know, guys that are available when I call and say, man, what do you think about this? How should I handle this? So that, that's a lot of it. And then God just kind of leading you, you know, in real time as well. You know, things happen. People ask you questions and, and you got to have a response. And, and God's been faithful in helping me do that as well. But, but my thing is this, Al, like, you know, I love Jesus, man. I, I'm a believer. 
Um, and I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you, you know, in my right mind if, if, if I didn't give my life to him at the age that I did. And there's just too much evidence in my life and things that have happened that I've seen too much to go back. So to say that is to say that is my, that is my sure foundation. Um, and, and, and I want that to be everybody's foundation. But I also respect the fact that people do have different beliefs. I do, you know, respect the fact that people are going through a process. And I think one major thing that I've learned over the years is sometimes your zeal can kill. You know, you want to have zeal according to knowledge. And yeah. People, people will let you know if they're open to hear, you know, your belief system. Right. Or they want to know, what, how'd you get here, man? Explain that right. to me. And I think it's just being sensitive to know when to, to act and when to speak. And then when to just live it out because... There's a lot of people talking in the world, Al, and their life doesn't match up with what they say. Yeah. And I'm not proclaiming to be a perfect man by any means, but I hope that my life speaks and my hope my, my life is 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 preaching to some degree. And then, you know, I only speak when I when I when I have to or when I feel less. So I've tried to strike the balance. It's not an easy thing, but uh it's encouraging to hear you say that, though. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting to me because I find, a, you know, and it, it's, when you're a public figure, all these things come into play, don't they? And, uh, and in your case, I, it's just intriguing to me. Andre, but, you but are... I, oh, I'll ahead. add this out if you don't, if you don't mind. I think, I think one thing, too, you know, when you do get people who kind of bash you about your faith and say that people don't want to hear that, I, I just stop and I think and I say, man, I see a lot of filth out there in the world. And you know, things that I'm guarding my kids from, you know, social media, not social media as a whole, but just things that are out yeah. there, people with no clothes on, people that are telling your kids, it's okay to vape, it's okay to smoke, it's okay to do, all these things, like, it's okay for that message to be heralded every single day in the world. And in some cases, it's our norm. We sit back and we just kind of laugh or, you know, it's all good. But when somebody says, man, hey, I hear all that, but man, can I, can I just kind of share how I got here and how I've been sustained? Oh, nobody wants to hear that. That's a little strange to me. Why are things that we know that are bad get, get heralded every day? And, and in most cases, I'm not saying that everybody's okay with it, but, but, but there's a conglomerate of people that are okay with that message being put forth. But then when somebody tries to share something positive or share how they got to a certain point or how they have, have remained in this place, Nobody wants to hear that. So that's a little strange to me. And I think that encourages me to be ready to speak when it's time to speak. Interesting. Well, and everybody, as you point out, everybody has their own journey to walk. For and sure. different ways to get to the same point. But for, when something works for you, uh, you want to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating. Andre, you are uh, a credit to the sport, have always been. And uh, I'm really delighted that uh, you were the first guest on my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. I, I thank you for the, you know, the opportunity and the invite. And uh, anytime you need me, I'll be here for you. Thanks so much for everything you've done for me over the years, man. And uh, once again, anything you need, just let me know. Thanks, Andre. Take care. Stay safe, Stay safe and healthy. Absolutely. Take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. So that was our chat with uh, Andre Ward. And, uh, you know, I trip. I just find him to be one of the most interesting and articulate people in uh, the sport of boxing. And I think... Uh, the way he uh, described and explained things in that interview speaks to that point. Well, he is a super smart guy. And when he was learning broadcasting, as he was still fighting, he kind of shadowed us at a fight in Vegas. And I found him just, he is one of the nicest guys you find in any sport. 
but he's also a thinking man's fighter. And he said a couple things in the interview, and he talked about fighters who get way too out of shape between fights yeah. and how they hurt themselves. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, and it and was pertinent now because of where we're at with fighters having these layoffs due to the coronavirus and how some will, will be disciplined in this and some won't. And you and I stay at our broadcasting weight between fights. Um, <laughs> we're, very, we're very consistent, yes. Yeah, discipline, I think, is the key. But he talked about a Calzoghi fight. How would that, how did it, was that an interesting conversation about punch volume and that sort of thing, Joe Cousin? Yep. Yeah, it was fascinating to me. Uh, you know, I, as I said in the interview, I, I love both those guys. I love Andre, I love Joe Calzaghi, and I thought Andre showed, though of course he would feel like he could win that fight, he showed the proper respect for Joe, who's also, who is a Hall of Famer. Andre will be a Hall of Famer. Uh, and it is, it is interesting. He, you know, we talked about a, a mythical matchup between the two. Well, there's another mythical matchup involving Joe Calzaghi that kind of came into the news this past week or so because Carl Frotch, who, of course, was a 168-pound champion um, and, and a terrific one from England, uh, who was in that same – and we referenced him in the, uh, in the interview with uh, Andre Ward because Ward beat him for the Super 6 title – Carl Frotch came just a little too late to fight Joe Calzaghi in what would have been a massive fight in England. Among, you know, uh, Wales from, for, uh, uh, Calzaghi from Wales and, um, uh, of course, Frotch from Nottingham. And, and it would have been, in the UK, a monstrous fight. And it's always kind of bothered Carl Frotch that Calzaghi retired before they could have that fight. And... Just this past week on his podcast, Carl Frotch not only decried the idea that he didn't get to fight him, he suggested he told uh, Eddie Hearn, the promoter, he should try and make that fight now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Joe Calzaghe's been retired for 11 years and he's 48, and, and <laughs> Frotch has been retired for about six years. And, uh, but Frotch was keen to have that fight right now. They could have the fight. <laughs> So uh, Joe Calzaghe tweeted out, he said, it's madness that I still live in the mind of Carl Frotch. Both of them, Carl Frotch also, by the way, uh, a fighter that I very much respect and admire for his tenacity in the ring. You know, he fought maybe the toughest schedule anybody has fought for a long time uh, in that 168-pound division, both in the Super 6 tournament and outside it. He just fought the hardest competition. And of course, he had a Wonderful career, but I think we're not likely to see the Calzaghi Frotch match anytime soon. And if you had an all star lineup of your best fighters over the age of 48, Bernard Hopkins. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, Bernard Hopkins would be, it would be a limited group. Archie Moore <laughs> fought past age 48, uh, believe it or not, and Hopkins did as well. Um, George Foreman never made it quite that long, but, uh, but he was pretty, uh, he was up there in years as well. Well, it, it, it is amazing, and it shows the love of the sport that many of these fighters have. People look, don't realize how much they just love the training and getting up for fights, though you should yeah, hang it up at a certain point. Yeah, and I, I think the two you referenced, you know, Bernard Hopkins didn't need to fight. Uh, you know, he had made a fortune, and he, but he kept himself in unbelievable condition and was effective almost to the end of his career, you know, as was Archie Moore. Archie Moore much, you know, did fight Muhammad Ali at far too an advanced age, and it was fighting a heavyweight, so he wasn't effective. 
But he held the light heavyweight championship. He won it at, I think, age 39 and kept it for eight years. So, you know, that's extraordinary against great, uh, against great light heavyweights. So, uh, and, and now I believe we have some more questions, do we not, from the, the fans? We do. Do you think Triple G was robbed in his last two fights? Against uh, oh, the fight against the fights against Canelo. They were talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. Um, the, the Triple G Canelo fights are lightning rods for boxing fans. There's no question that um, fans are divided on who won that fight, and they should be divided because these fights were razor thin. I personally, if I was, you know, I thought that Triple G very narrowly won both fights, very narrowly. So. Would I say that he was robbed? Absolutely not. Uh, you can make the case for Canelo winning one of those fights. The second fight, probably a better case than the first fight, um, but very, very close. And of course, now it's been announced that they will very likely fight each other a third time. Uh, maybe it'll be the first fight back for both of them after uh, boxing gets back into action. Canelo is supposed to fight Billy Joe Saunders. But now the way it's looking, that fight might get skipped for the moment, and he may go directly to Gennady Golovkin. The big issue there will be Golovkin, while he's still an excellent fighter, has he shown enough deterioration? Uh, he had a struggle in his last outing to win and just barely won. Uh, and so even though he performed well in, in major spots in that fight, and the question is, does he have enough left to, um, to face the younger Canelo? We'll find out. Well, it'll be interesting. Then we had another question. Is boxing in decline? And by that, I mean trainers, fighters. Do you see that at all? Yeah, I saw that question. You know, it was about whether trainers and fighters, the, the, you know, the depth of them. Are we in decline in terms of those, those people not being as good as before? I, you know, I'm not a cheerleader for boxing. I cover it. I'm a fan of boxing, of course, or I, I wouldn't enjoy it so much. Um, but I don't see myself as a cheerleader for it. However, I will give this answer. It's not in decline in terms of the product it puts out there. You know, boxing's product has, and the amount of fighters who are, I think, very good fighters, and it referenced the trainers specifically. Now, trainers, it's tricky because you, people debate different eras of trainers. Was this group better? Was that group better? Uh, and what about the current batch? I think in general, there are a lot of men out there who, uh, uh, and women uh, as well, who are, who are teaching the sport very well. Um, and, and so I don't see this huge drop off in trainers. And I certainly don't think there's a drop off in talent. And we would only go back to the, what we discussed earlier in, in the show. And that was the lightweight division where we have, uh, you know, Devin Haney and Teofimo Lopez and Ryan Garcia and Gervonta Davis, um, and still Vasily Lomachenko, who's older, but, but when they talk about people infusing the sport as young boxers, you look at that division and you look at the junior middleweight division where there's all kinds of talent and the welterweight division where there's all kinds of talent. So I think it's a fair statement to say it's the, the, the actual talent level is not in decline in the sport. And to that regard, as a follow-up, where would you say that the best young talent has come? What country is, is nurturing the best young fighters? Well, that's a good question. You know, there are many, uh, uh, the UK has produced great, terrific fighters and, and had many champions in the, last, um, in the last decade or so. 
I think the United States now, despite the fact, and this is kind of an, you know, a paradox, our, our, our amateur teams have not done well in terms of competition in, in international competition. And yet, you look at fighters like Errol Spence and, and, and the lightweights I mentioned that are from the United States and, and others, the United States is producing very good fighters and um, for the pro ranks. And so, you know, the U.S., the U.K. is another area certainly that's producing it. We're still getting great fighters from Mexico. Uh, the, one, the one place where they are searching for their next champion is Puerto Rico, which has normally produced many, many great champions. And there's kind of been a drought the last few years in terms of champions from Puerto Rico. But I, I guarantee you that that will, you know, uh, very soon, uh, uh, I think, change. And I think we're going to see some really great fighters from that place as well. How about Brockton, Massachusetts? Do we have a third champion? Yeah. Gee, what are those other two guys? Oh, yeah, that Roxy <laughs> fellow and yeah. the guy that we referred to before. They were pretty good overall. So Yeah, so Brockton might have a third. Yeah. And you were a big fan of Detroit, the Kronk gym, Emmanuel Stewart. That oh, meant yeah. a lot to I you. Mean, the, the 80s, they were, you know, it was amazing what they did in the 70s as well. And they produced a slew of champions. I was fortunate to to, um, to announce their fights, um, you know, Hilmer Kenty, Tommy Hearns, Milt McCrory, uh, Duan Johnson, the list goes on of great, uh, great champions that, uh, that they produce. So, you know, boxing, boxers come from everywhere. And, uh, and a lot of times they come from unlikely places, but Detroit was certainly, uh, you know, like the city of Philadelphia was a breeding ground for great fighters. Okay, and our final question from Twitter. What's the, Twitter, what is the craziest thing you've seen at a match? Ah, the craziest thing I've seen at a match, I think, live, was definitely the fan man. You know, that happened <laughs> here in Las Vegas, outdoors. I think it was at the Mirage or uh, the Hilton, one of those uh, outdoor sites. And I... The, I, my back was to the fan man as he came in. That was the, and it happened at the Riddick Bow Vander Holyfield second fight. And it was a very close fight going along late in the later rounds. And all of a sudden, I, I was facing the ring, and from over my head came this guy in a parachute who literally <laughs> landed just outside the ring. He could have landed on top of Riddick Bow and Evander Holyfield, it could have been a, a terrible situation, landed in the one spot where he didn't actually hurt anybody. It was a row just outside the ring where there's a kind of a, a bigger row there. And, uh, and it was crazy. And not only was that crazy, what ensued was nuts because Riddick Bowe's uh, people, Rock Newman, his manager, and a bunch <laughs> of other people started beating this guy up. You know, they were distressed at what he had done. Uh, and so the, before the police could get in there and, and break things up, that was pretty nutty. Now, the weirdest thing that's ever happened at ringside on a personal basis, if I could uh, uh, transition into that, and why not, right? We can do whatever we want here. <laughs> you know, the, I don't think there's a rule, is there? Um, there is not. No. All right. So you'll tell me if there, you are the commissioner of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. so you will, yes. Tell me if there's a rule. Please go ahead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Trip Mitchell co-host slash commissioner of the uh, Albertine Un Unplugged. So at ringside, when I was doing the second uh, 
uh, match between Juan Manuel Lopez and uh, Orlando Salido. They'd had a great first fight down in Puerto Rico, and Salido upset Juan Manuel Lopez. And so they did the rematch again in Puerto Rico. That it was again an exciting fight. It was stopped, and there was maybe a teen, a teensy bit of controversy as to whether it should have been stopped at that point, even though Salido had Lopez in all kinds of trouble. And some of the fans were distressed that it was stopped. And of course, when boxing fans get distressed, they throw things. You know, <laughs> they throw, you know, uh, uh, items that are near them. Occasionally, they'll, they'll throw a spouse if it's at all possible. You know, uh, and so they were throwing things and a full plastic water bottle with water in it hit me right here. And when you when there's water in a full, you know, when it's full, a plastic <laughs> a water bottle can hurt. And, and I opened up a gash right over here just above my eye. Thank goodness it landed there instead of right on my eye. And I was like stunned. This was right after. So we're still on the air and I'm supposed to be still talking. And I was like really stunned. I somehow managed to get through the rest of the, the, the end of the broadcast. And, uh, and I was bleeding and I was, you know, dizzy. But in keeping with broadcast television and the expectations of it, at the end of every broadcast, I would take this uh, uh, kind of review of what happened in the evening that Showtime would then put on digital platforms and, uh, and air as a, you know, kind of a review of the fights. <laughs> the young producer that did that walked up to me like, I'm going to say about a minute and a half after the show ended and said, okay, you're ready to do this uh, review now? <laughs> I'm bleeding from the, my, <laughs> you know, above my eye and I can barely walk. And I said, you know, I think we might wait on that one. Just <laughs> did, did you have your own cut man? Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. I should have had, like, uh, you know, somebody great cut man like uh, Miguel Diaz or, uh, <laughs> you know, or Chuck Bolden or Eddie Aliano, the great man from the past. But no, they, that's one thing they do not provide. They will provide you with makeup on the Showtime a show, thank goodness. Uh, but they, they don't <laughs> provide us with a, with a cut man or woman. So that's not so good. Um, well, Al, real, real quickly, Al, my yeah. favorite memory from boxing happened outside the ring at a Valley Bank in Vegas. Buster Douglas, after he upset Tyson, got signed by Steve Wynn. As someone joked, I think you joked at the only time, it's the only time that Top Rank and Don King ever got together. Yeah. And that was hating Steve Wynn for a while. They gave him a million dollar check, the big check. They gave him a smaller check. He walked across the street to Valley Bank and tried to cash it while I was in there. Oh, and wow. Buster Douglas was shocked they didn't have a million dollars for him waiting. <laughs> he thought they would just hand the cash over to him. Exactly. Yeah. And that is Las Vegas in boxing. Yeah. That, that is actually the embodiment of Las Vegas in boxing. And of course, Buster Douglas went on to lose his title that night or at that time to Evander Holyfield. A little too much room service for Buster leading up to that, <laughs> up to that fight. Um, well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I want to mention also uh, my colleagues at Showtime will be uh, airing. Uh, you can watch it uh, uh, on uh, the, every Friday night. They're airing great fights from the past as we, you know, have our hiatus from live boxing. And the next one's up will be Paulie Ayala and uh, Johnny Tapia uh, that will be uh, on uh, Friday nights on, uh, on Showtime. And uh, so you want to tune into that and uh, check out the, uh, the, the consecutive weeks of, uh, 
of his fights from uh, the past that, and from the Showtime archives that they'll be putting up there. Um, we are going to, in our next show, we'll be featuring, speaking of Showtime, Brian Custer, who is the host of Showtime Boxing, a great broadcaster who does football and basketball for Fox, and uh, he's a, a terrific guy. Um, and I want to thank uh, Tripp for uh, co-hosting this inaugural uh, show, and also my thanks to Andre Ward uh, for visiting with us on this show. It was really delight to talk to him. So continue to tweet me uh, questions at, uh, at Al Bernstein, though we have so many. I think we, we, could, we could supply another five or six shows at least with the questions you give them, but keep doing it. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed this debut episode of our show. We'll see you next time.